So thanks everyone for joining us today. I'm Jen Mascott, co-director of the Seaborn Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State, and we are so thankful that many of you have joined us here today. We're in the bowels of the U.S. Senate here on the Capitol complex. Very glad to be here. And you know, obviously, with with everything going on, coming out of a pandemic, security um, a little bit challenging to be here in person. But we have our live stream, and know many of you are joining us live stream today, and want to prompt a lot of um, I think interesting and informed and engaged discussion with some top experts, formerly of the executive branch, formerly of the judiciary, about some really important governmental questions. So the title of today's conference, as you all know, is Congress's Interbranch Role, the Executive, the Court, and Dobbs. One of the reasons for having the conference here is that the Gray Center, as a primarily academic institution, does a lot, sponsors a lot of research and educational programming and conferences on questions regarding the power exercised by administrative agencies, but more broadly, constitutional questions about the separation of powers. What is the role of the federal government? What's the role of Congress, the executive branch, and the judiciary within it? And the Gray Center has actually, this calendar year, been on both the Senate and House side with staff talking about some of those issues. And so this conference is, is sort of a capstone way to try to further those discussions and is also prompted by some timely issues around town, such as the unprecedented leak of a full draft opinion by the Supreme Court touching on a contentious policy question uh, in, the, in the Dobbs case um, several weeks ago. And so the discussion today will be prompted by that is, is somewhat about that um, circumstance, more broadly the institution of the Supreme Court, and what the action like that leak and the general balance of power between the branches means for larger questions about our institutions of government, how sound are they, are there threats to them, um, Congress has taken some efforts, whether it's providing more security or raising questions about transparency and accountability with the court, tried to step in. Is that appropriate? How does all of this relate to the executive, who obviously nominates a lot of folks to the judiciary, who's authorized to take action by Congress? Um, and so we've got panels of experts today to cover both of those things. We'll start with our panel on um, Congress versus the executive, um, dealing with general issues there, but also oversight, emergency authority, regulatory reform. Form. And the panel is going to be moderated by Steve Bradbury, who will introduce the rest of our panelists. Josh Chaffetz, professor at Georgetown University Law Center, unfortunately, in this um Time had to drop out last minute due to sickness, but he has actually published a book called Congress's Constitution on a lot of the mechanisms that Congress has to restrain the executive. So encourage folks to check that out and purchase a copy um, if they haven't already read it. So Steve, our esteemed moderator, um, is a former senior U.S. government official, actually in multiple capacities. Steve served in the Trump administration as the Senate-confirmed general counsel of the U.S. Department of Transportation from November 2017 until January 2021. So until the end of the administration and almost the entire time, he was the chief legal officer for the department, overseeing all of the Department of Transportation's rulemaking and enforcement actions and responses to oversight. He also had the honor of serving um, as acting deputy secretary for some time at the Department of Transportation and then briefly um, in January 2021 as the acting secretary of transportation. Um, during the Bush 43 administration, he served as the principal deputy and acting assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel at the U.S. Department of Justice. And that role, um, for those of you um, who are familiar with DOJ, is quite significant because the head of the Office of Legal Counsel really serves as the principal constitutional legal advisor for the president and the administrative branch and um, is, is, is left to answer questions through formal um, 
opinions for the executive branch about um, constitutional questions, oversight questions, and the role of uh, various agencies who raise questions about the extent of their scope. Um, but prior to that service, um, at the start of his legal career, um, Steve was a law clerk to Justice Thomas, and prior to that to Judge Buckley on the DC Circuit. And with Justice Thomas, I think you were his second term on the court, so right at the very beginning. So with that, I'm gonna hand things over to our very esteemed, qualified moderator to introduce the rest of our panelists and kick us off with some great discussion. Thank you very much. Jen, thank you so much. Is this on? Can everybody hear me? Great, thanks. Really appreciate it, Jen, and uh, very thankful to the Gray Center for hosting this event. Uh, to all of you uh, for coming and everybody who's watching, really appreciate the interest. And uh, to the Senate Visitor Center for accommodating us uh, today. I'm gonna uh, kick this off by introducing uh, my esteemed co-panelists joining me here today. Uh, on the end is uh, Will Levy. Uh, Will is a partner in uh, Sidley and Austin uh, here in DC. Uh, litigation partner. He does uh, civil litigation, government enforcement actions, regulatory disputes, and appellate matters. And he's served actually in senior positions or in positions in all three branches of government, uh, most recently at the Department of Justice in the Trump administration, uh, where, where uh, Will was chief of staff and senior counsel uh, to Attorney General uh, Bill Barr. And if any of you have uh, read Bill Barr's recent book, you'll see that Will is frequently uh, referenced in the in the book. Uh, for his work at DOJ, Will was awarded the Department of Justice's highest honor, the uh, Edmund Randolph Award for Outstanding Service uh, to the Department. Before that, uh, he served on the Hill as a staff director of the Senate Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Antitrust, and uh, also as chief counsel to Senator Mike Lee. Um, he was a law clerk, on the US Supreme Court for Justice Sam Alito, and also on the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit to Judge uh, Sirica. He's a graduate of Stanford University and of Yale Law School. So really appreciate Will's participation. Uh, next we have Hash Mupan. Uh, Hash <clears throat> is a partner in the Jones Day Issues and Appeals uh, group, and uh, Hash has also uh, held senior leadership positions at the Department of Justice. He really uh, held some of the principal positions on appellate uh, practice for uh, DOJ. Uh, he was counselor to the Solicitor General and a Deputy Assistant Attorney General <clears throat> for the appellate staff in the Civil Division. And in that capacity, he's argued cases in the Supreme Court and many cases in the lower federal courts. He was also uh, an assistant to the Solicitor uh, General. Um, Hosh was a law clerk to Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court and to just, uh, Judge Mike Ludig on the Fourth Circuit. He's a graduate of Harvard, both undergrad and, and law school, so really appreciate their uh, participation. Our topic, is, as Jen mentioned, is the relationship between Congress and the executive branch and some of the separation of powers issues that come into play, the push and pull between the branches. Um, the framers of the Constitution believed, understood that it was uh, fundamental to preserving the liberty of the people to guarantee a structural division or separation between the branch, between the major powers exercised by the new federal government. 
the legislative, the executive, and the judicial power. So we have Articles 1, 2, and 3. Article 1 vests in Congress the power to make laws. Uh, Article 2 vests in the president the power to carry them out, to implement and enforce the law. And Article 3 vests in the judiciary, the courts, uh, the power to, dis to interpret the law and decide how it applies in particular cases and controversies. Now, we're going to focus on Article 1 and Article 2, Congress versus uh, the executive branch. Under Article 1, uh, Congress acts collectively through two bodies, the House and the Senate. And its primary function, as I said, is legislative. It makes law. This is the way Congress, and the only way, really, that Congress can prescribe and alter the legal rights of parties outside the government is through its legislative uh, function. And as you all know, uh, to pass a law, both houses of Congress have, have to approve it, and then it gets presented to the president for approval. That's bicameralism and presentment. If the president vetoes it, it can only become a law if Congress overrides his veto through two-thirds in both houses. Congress has some other functions, uh, obviously important. Both houses decide the rules for their, the conduct of their own business. Um, the Senate approves appointments, uh, certain appointments of principal officers, etc. The Senate also can approve treaties negotiated by the, by the president. And then the two houses of Congress share uh, responsibility in impeachments and uh, convictions for impeachment. The House uh, can pass articles of impeachment on its own, and the Senate can conduct a trial on its own of uh, impeached uh, officers. Um, implied in these authorities under the Constitution is the uh, supplemental authority or the, the, the uh, adjunct authority to obtain information that Congress needs to carry out its functions. It's recognized that Congress doesn't legislate or act in a vacuum. It needs to understand what's happening out in the world, how the laws it's already enacted have been implemented, uh, whether things need to be improved or changed. And Congress obtains that information primarily through the structure of committees uh, that Congress sets up. And so it holds hearings. Uh, many of those committees, by rule, have authority to issue subpoenas and obtain test, compel testimony and obtain documents in order to inform Congress so that it can carry out its functions in a knowledgeable way. Uh, under Article II, the executive branch uh, performs very, very distinct and separate functions. Uh, the president, through his supervision of subsidiary officers in the executive branch, uh, implements and enforces the laws passed by uh, Congress. In addition, the president has certain authorities that are assigned to him by the Constitution exclusive to the president. And, and these include the power to make appointments, including to nominate those that are confirmed by the Senate, the power to receive ambassadors and treat with foreign nations, the power to act as commander-in-chief of the armed forces, the power to pardon uh, criminals. Uh, and those powers are uh, assigned by the Constitution to the president. Now, to carry out all these powers of the executive branch, there are also implied uh, sort of adjunct uh, powers that the, uh, that the 
executive branch has, and those include the power to interpret what the law means and requires for purposes of carrying out faithfully the requirements of the law, and also the ability to, uh, to have advisors and su subordinate officers make recommendations, help formulate policy within the scope of discretion that is assigned to the executive branch uh, under, under the laws enacted by Congress. These, all of these subsidiary uh, ancillary powers of uh, information gathering for Congress and formulating policy for the executive branch often come into play and clash when it comes to separation of powers issues between the branches. We're going to explore uh, that today. We've divided the panel into two parts. In the first part, we're going to discuss the oversight function of Congress generally, the oversight power. Um, that raises probably the most common issues in the separation of powers uh, relationships between the branches. In the second part, we're going to explore some specific actions that the branches might take in the context of hypothetical scenarios that we're going to walk through. So let's start with the oversight. And um, as Jen mentioned, we were going to be joined by uh, Professor Chaffetz from uh, Georgetown, who is an expert in the constitutional authority of Congress. Uh, unfortunately, in his absence, I think the three of us will do the best we can to uh, represent the perspectives of both Congress and the executive branch accurately and fairly. Uh, I'm going to kick it off by describing the perspective of Congress with regard to the oversight function of Congress. And I can do this rather briefly. Congress, Congress's perspective is its oversight power, its oversight authority is, all, is extremely broad, almost unlimited, uh, that any, any authority, any potential power that falls under the Constitution by any officer of, of uh, empowered under the Constitution is potentially the subject of uh, the oversight inquiries and information gathering from Congress. And by the way, oversight is really the function of Congress looking over the shoulder of the executive branch as it implements the laws and carries out its functions to ensure that uh, it's doing it in the way Congress wishes. And, and if there are problems, then Congress can change the law enact new laws, uh, et cetera. Um, so uh, uh, that perspective from, from uh, the Capitol Hill side is that, the, oh, is that the ability to obtain information, documents, testimony from the executive branch really has no practical limits. Uh, and uh, I'll actually read briefly a statement that Professor Chaffetz included in testimony this past November in uh, sort of setting forth this perspective uh, when he testified before a committee of, of Congress. He said, even if one accepts that any given exercise of the congressional investigatory power must be justified with respect to some explicitly enumerated congressional power, it does not follow that there is any matter beyond Congress's capacity to investigate. Even an investigation for a currently unconstitutional purpose 
could be justified as an investigation that might potentially lead to a constitutional amendment, uh, making that formerly unconstitutional purpose constitutional. I think it's fair to say, as a veteran of the executive branch, that the executive branch does not look at uh, Congress's uh, oversight power in the same way. So I'm going to turn it over now to Will uh, Levy to describe uh, the perspective of the executive branch with regard to the scope of Congress's oversight authority. Will? Sure. Uh, thanks, Steve. Is this on? Um, so the, the executive's view is, is also easily stated. Of course, it, it is in disagreement with uh, the Chaffetz uh, model. And in fairness to the executive branch, I think the Supreme Court's view of this is also uh, in some tension with the Chaffetz model. Um, the, the executive branch's view, of course, is that uh, oversight is an adjunct to the legislative process, that the legislature's oversight authorities are coextensive with its legislative power, um, that there are limits, uh, thus, uh, to the oversight authority, uh, which are similar to the limits uh, on its uh, legislative authority, which is to say they cannot trench on the executive branches or the judicial branches' spheres. Um, and thus, there are areas, unlike, I, I gather, what, what, what uh, Professor Chavis has argued, where the Congress cannot go. Um, for example, they cannot uh, conduct law enforcement under the guise uh, of oversight, um, which I think is, is fairly uncontroversial. But of course, Congress is entitled to its view of, of oversight and, and has interests in, in, in maintaining an expansive view. Um, so uh, importantly, even where um, uh, there is a proper legislative purpose uh, to oversight. There are still sort of critical limitations uh, imposed um, on that oversight, and those those involve the executive branch's interest in uh, confidentiality, um, which really permits it to to be effective for the president to uh, be the recipient of un, unvarnished private advice, um, so that not everything occurs in public or in the anticipation of it being public. Um, and, and this has long been sort of, you know, assumed to be an important part of the deliberative uh, process of the executive branch, um, so much so that it's, it's sort of OLC opinions over time have said it, it, it goes without saying, and it's, it does not need to be discussed. Um, and so there are there's basically four different components of the executive privilege. Um, uh, two, uh, two are presidential communications and deliberative process privilege. Um, and then the other two are law enforcement and state secrets. Um, with respect to the first two, um, which are the ones that sort of folks naturally tend to think of, um, you know, presidential communications privilege uh, 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 protects communications that the president has with the senior staff. Um, and on the OLC view of this, it also protects communications that the senior staff have with others in the administration and even with folks outside of government in order that they be able to inform themselves and then give their best advice to the president. So, so that sort of train of communications is protected by um, the presidential communications privilege. And then there's sort of a broader privilege um, which uh, in, protects the communications that occur elsewhere in the administration. So this is the deliberative process privilege. Um, and, and that protects communications that are not necessarily had with the president or even his senior advisors. Um, but as between personnel in the agencies and departments um, in their sort of pre-decisional deliberations. Um, and I think it's, it's important to note that with respect to these, these privileges, they're not absolute. 
Um, and so when, when challenged, um, uh, Congress um, can, you know, potentially obtain access to such uh, uh, communications if in, uh, they have to demonstrate that it's, you know, demonstrably critical is the standard for these, for these communications. But it's not out of the question that it, in challenges they would be able to obtain access um, even to uh, presidential communications. Um, the, the two other uh, privileges uh, are law enforcement and state secrets, as I said. These are more absolute um, in a sense. They both derive from uniquely executive authorities, um, the take care clause and the uh, commander in chief uh, power. Um, and in the first case, they protect the sort of deliberations that go into um, prosecutorial decisions and the like. Um, and in the, in the second case, they protect uh, national security secrets, um, uh, which um, uh, the, where the president believes the disclosure would, would endanger uh, the nation's security. Um, those, are the, those are the four privileges. I'm, it, it might be worth mentioning Mazars. Um, it's a little, little bit different, but um, it, it, it's not congressional oversight of the executive branch per se, but um, where Mazars, the recent Supreme uh, Court opinion, um, which addressed uh, third-party subpoenas seeking um, financial President Trump's financial information. Um, this, this could be relevant again, and I don't want to get ahead of the panel discussion, but with respect to Congress's potential interest in uh, presidential family members and the like, where um, uh, th these privileges we discussed might not, might not be applicable, that doesn't mean there wouldn't be uh, potential arguments that uh, the president or others could raise with respect to the separation of powers. And, and Mazars con contemplates that. Um, <laughs> And it contemplates even where subpoenas are to third parties, there might be limits on what Congress uh, can obtain in those instances. Um, so I thought I'd, I'd flag that as well, although that's not a privilege per se, but it is a evolving and important limitation potentially on what Congress might be able to obtain. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to throw in there, uh, Will, that as I mentioned, uh, for the most part, Congress, certainly for its legislative functions, operates through the structure of committees in Congress. Um, it also has committees in Congress, uh, as many in this room well know, um, that do not have a legislative function, do not consider legislation, but rather have a purely investigatory function uh, with very broad jurisdiction under the rules of the House and the Senate and under statute to conduct investigations and in particular with regard to oversight. We have two committees, one taking the point for the House and one taking the point for the Senate. In the House, it's the Oversight and Government Operations Committee and in the Senate, it's the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, HISGAC. And since uh, 1966, there's been a law on the books uh, that requires an executive agency on the request of either of those committees uh, to submit any information requested uh, relating to any matter within the jurisdiction of those committees. And if you look, the jurisdiction of those committees, at least as expressed in the rules, is unlimited. It's basically intergalactic uh, jurisdiction over every molecular action in the universe. Um, this statute also says that 
The executive branch agency also must respond to any information request that comes from any seven members, any seven members of the House Oversight Committee and any five members of HISGAC on the Senate side. So very powerful. There's been a recent uh, case in the D.C. Circuit construing this. Uh, it, on its face, doesn't purport to say there's any limit uh, for privileges, for example, uh, to the information that the executive agencies have to uh, submit. Um, uh, I think it's fair to say the executive branch would read into that statute uh, implied limitations uh, to preserve the ability of the president and the executive branch to carry out its functions. Um, let me turn to Hash now to describe the uh, very important aspect of this relationship, which is the accommodation process between the executive branch and Congress when it comes to oversight. Hash. So yeah, so I'll allow bracket questions for now about the respective scopes of each branch's view of oversight, and focus on what happens when, as they often do, there's a disagreement. And in general, what happens is it's resolved through a co a, an accommodation process, which is essentially just political negotiations over the scope of the oversight that will be provided. And, you know, that's, you know, the Congress will try to see whether there are ways they can narrow the set of information they want or obtain it in slightly different ways. The executive will decide whether they're willing to waive certain privileges to reach an accommodated resolution. And this is true for sort of two reasons. One, in general, this is the way the political branches always sort of iron out differences. But in the oversight uh, context, it's particularly necessary because there's not a natural other way to get a definitive resolution. And that's because of the nature of how you go about enforcing oversight. So traditionally, the way you would enforce a congressional subpoena is through the contempt power. But there are lots of complications with that, sort of from both sides' perspectives. So on the one hand, on Congress's side, to actually go through and get both the committee and the whole chamber, either the House or the Senate, to hold generally a high-ranking executive branch official in contempt is a big deal. It's got a lot of political consequences. It takes a lot of airtime. Conversely, though, for the executive branch officials can't just sort of defy inactive a subpoena just on their own. If When the fight actually gets joined, ultimately you need the president to actually formally assert uh, the executive privilege, and that also is a big deal. It takes a lot of air time. The president's time is, of course, very limited. And so for all of those reasons, there are lots of incentives to try to iron it out short of that. But then on top of all of that, there is the fact that if the executive branch, the president does assert executive privilege... At that point, even if the House doubles down and still votes to find the person in contempt, it's the longstanding position of the executive branch that they won't bring a contempt prosecution, both as a matter of prosecutorial discretion, but also as a matter of a construction of the contempt statute that it, they don't view it as a willful contempt to not comply because of an instruction from the president based on a valid assertion of executive privilege. And so that, in general, sort of leads to a stalemate. Recently, Congress has tried to break the stalemate by bringing litigation themselves. So, you know, a, either a committee with the authorization of the House or the House itself 
has tried to bring civil litigation, and this happened most recently in the uh, McGahn litigation over the, the House Judiciary Committee's subpoena of the White House counsel to get testimony. And uh, that case sort of encapsulates sort of the complexities of litigation. Before I get into the details of it, I think the one big picture takeaway is that not only is litigation complicated, it's slow, right? From the perspective of the legislative branch, this is decidedly a suboptimal way to deal with this problem. Because as in McGahn, as in virtually all sort of litigation in this context, it almost always takes longer than either the Chamber of Congress or the President remains in office. Uh, these cases have a way of mooting out, and so it, it's a problem from the legislative branch's perspective that they're forced into litigation. So I'll talk a little bit at the tail end about things that might could be done about that. But so on the litig in the McGahn litigation, uh, you know, after the, uh, the district court held that Congress could sue to enforce the subpoena and the subpoena was valid, there was a round of litigation in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, initially, a panel, in an opinion authored by uh, Judge Griffith, who, uh, who's on our second panel today, held, uh, agreed with the Department of Justice that uh, the House and the committee of the House, they lack Article Three standing to enforce the subpoena. You know, to bring a lawsuit in federal court, you need to have standing, and that involves requiring the type of injury that lets you get into federal court. And uh, the argument that the Department of Justice made and that the panel agreed with is that those are typically rights of individuals of private parties. Government components don't suffer themselves injuries that can be litigated in court. The United States suffers injuries to the government. But it's the executive branch that's responsible for litigating injuries to uh, components of the government. And of course, the executive branch hadn't filed the lawsuit in the game. Now, uh, that ruling uh, was taken en banc in the D.C. Circuit, and the D.C. Circuit uh, disagreed with that view and agreed with the district court that there was Article Three standing. It then went back down to the panel, and Judge Griffith, not to be deterred, uh, then said that there was no cause of action to sue, uh, which is another argument that the Department of Justice had made that said that there's no statute that authorizes branches of Congress to sue to enforce a subpoena in these circumstances. Now, interestingly, there is a statute that authorizes the Senate to sue to enforce its subpoenas, but there's an express carve-out for uh, subpoenas that are against the executive branch, where the executive branch has asserted a, uh, a privilege. And so uh, part of the argument, part of what uh, the panel held was, in a circumstance where Congress has legislated on this issue, has said the Senate can sue, but only in a set of circumstances, and has never said that the House could sue, uh, they, they can't. That holding also was taken on bonk, but as I adverted to earlier, uh, the administration changed and then the case settled. Uh, so that opinion was vacated and the state of the law right now remains unclear about whether Congress without an express statute can sue. So the last thing I'll say is a couple of observations about this in terms of what, from the legislative branch's perspective, they might want to think about. So the most obvious is they might want to think about passing a statute authorizing suit. Uh, if they do, that will... A, it'll solve the cause of action issue. B, it will bolster the standing issue. Uh, you know, right now in the D.C. Circuit, you'll be fine, but that issue is going to go up to the Supreme Court if there's ever a subpoena that's enforced, and 
the Supreme Court might very well be receptive to the views that were expressed by the panel if there's an act of Congress recognizing an injury to Congress that might well bolster the Article Three standing arguments and will certainly solve the cause of action arguments. Now, of course, we're talking about legislation. Legislation's hard to pass at all times. But, you know, one thing about this is it's arguably the sort of thing that a bipartisan coalition could come around because everyone at one point or another tries to enforce subpoenas. And this particular executive branch hasn't been the most jealous guardian of executive branch prerogatives. So I'm not sure if, if it gets out of Congress whether this president would veto it or not. So that's one thing to think about. Two other quick uh, points. Contempt is generally done through criminal contempt and through the Department of Justice. There is something called inherent contempt, which is that Congress has historically actually sometimes sent the sergeant of arms out and physically arrested people and you know locked them up in a prison on the Capitol grounds. Supposedly, there's a jail somewhere yeah. in the basement here. <laughs> uh, you know, that's serious. There is. That it is. It is a recognized. <laughs> it's, it's a recognized historical power. It is not a recognized historical power as applied to executive branch officials who have asserted privilege and backed by the president. I believe it's only been done twice in circumstances like that, and both of those uh, were rejected by the courts, though on other grounds. So I think it'd be fairly untested to use it, and obviously it would very much heighten the stakes of the political conflict to have... Congress sending someone out to arrest a high-ranking executive branch official. Uh, and the, uh, I'll mention two other things. One is, if the problem here is that the executive branch won't bring prosecutions, historically one might have thought, well, maybe we'll try to bring, have a special prosecutor in the sort of Morrison versus Olson mold of the world. Now, of course, these days with the current Supreme Court and the sort of trend on the unitary executive, that sort of legislation would likely not fair very well in litigation. It would likely be viewed that the president has to have the authority to control a criminal prosecution, even in the context of enforcing a congressional subpoena. But that is another option to think about. And then the last thing I'll mention, and it's what uh, Steve had briefly adverted to, is there actually is already a statute, this seven-member statute, that purports to authorize a subset of members of those two committees to an entitlement to information uh, it doesn't have any sort of exceptions for privilege or anything like that, and arguably, because it's a statute that governs agencies, it can be enforced through the APA, at least so the argument goes. Uh, and the D.C. Circuit, actually, at the tail end of uh, 2020, held that there was standing for congressmen to, individual congressmen to enforce that statute. Uh, there's been an en banc petition that's been pending for about a year and a half now. Uh, so... I was actually sort of surprised to see that there wasn't more use of that statute sort of when the administration changed and that's something at least while that DC circuit opinions out there seems like it's available option. Hosh, thanks. Um, I just want to underscore a couple of the things that Hosh mentioned because they really are critical. Um, sometimes we assume or think that uh, the executive branch will never prosecute sort of as a blanket policy any contempt citation against uh, current or former executive officers. But it's important to realize what Hosh 
stressed, and that is that this requires an actual assertion of executive privilege by the president. Only the president can assert executive privilege. That's a decision that's consider, that's made on a considered basis with a lot of input from the Justice Department on uh, whether it's appropriate and justified in a given case, uh, given the needs of Congress and the confidentiality interests of the executive branch. And that the, the practice is that that assertion of executive privilege has to occur before the scheduled committee vote on contempt for an outstanding subpoena. So it's only in that circumstance where there's been a valid assertion of executive privilege by the president supported by the advice of the attorney general, and that has occurred before the contempt vote in the committee. In those circumstances, then the longstanding position of the executive branch is that uh, it's appropriate for the attorney general to direct the U.S. attorney not to convene a grand jury, not to prosecute that contempt, because to do so would be contrary to the president's assertion of executive privilege. And by the way, executive privilege, as Will you know, summarized, it goes all the way back to the first president, George Washington, recognized a, a, a privilege. And although the executive branch views Congress's oversight authority as something that needs to be uh, um, connected to uh, a valid exercise of legislative power by Congress or certain specific functions, for example, of the Senate uh, considering an appointment, uh, a nominee, for example. Um, nevertheless, the accommodation process that Hash described is one where in almost every case an accommodation is reached where the executive branch does provide in some form access to information to the committee of Congress that they need where they've demonstrated the need. It's a, it's a back and forth process, it's a discussion, it's sometimes painful on one side or the other, but in the end, almost always, you get to a point where information is provided in a useful form. It may not be everything the committee desires, but it's uh, a mutual stand down, if you will, after, after that. It's rare for the president to assert executive privilege, very rare for contempt to be voted on by a full house, uh, and certainly very rare for it to go to the courts, and that's, that's really the way it should be. And that's, as a practical matter, the way our government functions. Each branch has relations with the other branch that are very important to it. The president needs Congress to pass a budget, fund the agencies, give uh, the president the important legislative priorities he's looking for, et cetera. So let's now move to the second part of our uh, panel discussion where we're going to address some specific <coughs> hypotheticals. Uh, and the, this is based on an assumption, just an assumption for discussion purposes, that the fall elections uh, produce uh, a divided government between the parties. Yeah, Jen. Host privilege. I'm glad that you're switching hybrids because I did want to ask you all because you've done a great job explaining the process and all the constitutional issues with the election coming. I mean, obviously, right now, Congress, both chambers are held by the same party as the president. So the incentive structure for oversight is not what it might be if one of the chambers changes hands in the right. fall, which if history is a guide suggests almost certainly just statistically will happen. So I'm wondering if yep. when you talk about the hypos, you all can predict or comment on how you think if the House, it, 
in particular switches hands, what types of information the members right. based on current events might be interested in getting and how they'd go about it and whether those efforts will be successful. Exactly. That's what we're going to talk about. Thanks. Um, and as everybody who experiences, you know, life in Washington understands, if, if a house flips to the party that is not the party of the president uh, in the White House, it's like an earthquake in, in, in Washington. It's a radical or fundamental shift in the dynamics. And certainly when it comes to oversight and the relations between the branches, often the White House will go out and double the size of the White House counsel's office and hire, you know, sort of lawyer up, uh, if you will, because it becomes almost like a litigation relationship in, in, in some respects. We're going to discuss three sort of paradigm hypos uh, based on an assumption that one or both houses uh, shifts to Republican control uh, in the fall. And the question is, what are the means, the tools that Congress might use in that case uh, to um, seek information or try to affect the policy of the executive branch? And this is not limited to oversight. Uh, any, any tools in the toolbox. And then what might be the executive branch's uh, response to that. And so the first hypothetical, I'm going to turn it over to Hosh. And this is really uh, an, a, examples where the executive branch might be over enforcing from Congress's perspective, the laws that have been delegated, granted to the executive branch. So overly expansive regulations or enforcement, emergency orders like the COVID mandates, or think of, for example, EPA rules uh, in the greenhouse gas or climate change area where from the perspective of some members of Congress, you might think that's, a, oh, that's an ultra vires or overly expansive use of statutory authority that was granted back in the 1970s when Congress had never heard of uh, these climate change issues. And so the question is, uh, a Republican House, a Republican Senate, how might they go about trying to rein in what they view as overly expansive actions by the executive branch? Hosh? Sure. So, you know, there are a bunch of different categories of things. So I'll, I'll bracket for the moment actual affirmative legislation, both because even under the hypo, get actually affirmatively enacting legislation takes a lot. You're getting past filibusters, getting past vetoes. So bracket legislation for now. There's still a lot of different things that can be done. I'll start with oversight because that's where we started before. Uh, you know, just first of all, sort of figuring out what the executive branch is doing and sort of shining a light on it is helpful in terms of stopping problematic practices. But also, you know, often when you're talking about affirmative overreach, there's typically these days going to be litigation from someone. Uh, even if it's not from Congress, there'll be private parties or, uh, you know, states or in, in industry groups who will challenge virtually any executive branch action that's alleged to exceed statutory authority. And oversight actually can potentially sort of help and bolster that litigation. So an example that happened during our administration was during the census litigation, where there was uh, litigation over adding a question to the census. And at the same time we were litigating that, uh, Congress was asking all sorts of oversight questions about why the question was added. And it would seem pretty clear that at least part of the reason they were asking those questions was to try to use it to sort of bolster and supplement the litigation, especially after the Supreme Court eventually held that you can set aside agency action 
if the expressed reason isn't really the reason, if it's contrived, it's pretextual. So sort of using Congress as a basically a supplemental means of discovery in agency litigation is a potential strategy that I, has been used and I could imagine being used again. Uh, obviously, you, there are the whole set of tools that Congress has historically used to deal with executive branch overreach. You can block legislation the executive branch wants unless they change policies. You can block their budget, cut their budget, either for the agency that's involved or more generally. You can do things like blocking nominees if you have control of the Senate. Uh, so I, those things are all fairly well known and how they apply to any given executive branch overreach is going to depend on a, just a basic question of how much, you know, how proportionate uh, the fight's going to be, how, how how much each side cares and who's, who's willing to push harder on it. Uh, I will circle back briefly to legislation, which is obviously if you can get legislation either through a veto override or through must-pass legislation, there's the obvious, which is, you know, pass legislation that blocks whatever it is the executive branch is doing. But as a more general matter, you know, there are various, there are two pieces of legislation, one that actually exists and one that's been proposed that it's a sort of more structural, systemic way of thinking about these issues. So the one that already exists is the Congressional Review Act, which is a, a piece of legislation that essentially requires executive branch agencies to report at least certain major rules to uh, Congress, and there's basically a fast-track review process where Congress can essentially disapprove that legislation. Now, because it's Congress can't do it itself, ultimately still the president has to vote on it. So the CRA has much more force when you're dealing with regs that were passed at the tail end of one administration and then you shift to a new administration because essentially what it does is lets you get around the filibuster. It's much less powerful while the same president is still in office because he's undoubtedly going to veto the blocking legislation. Uh, that's why the proposed legislation that I wanted to flag uh, is the RAINS Act that uh, has been around for a little while, which would essentially sort of flip the presumption and essentially require agencies to report proposed regulations and basically require legislative approval before it goes into effect rather than conversely. And so that obviously would be a very, very major structural change to how executive branch agencies operate, and it would fairly radically uh, uh, remove the delegation of legislative power that executive branch agencies basically have at the at this time. But it, it is definitely one major way of dealing with executive overreach. Great. Thanks, Sash. Uh, Will, I'm going to turn it to you now, and uh, we're going to address a different uh, hypothetical scenario. This uh, is a situation of under- uh, enforcement. This is where, uh, from the perspective of some in Congress, the president and the executive branch may be refusing to enforce or carry out the requirements of important uh, law. And uh, think, for example, of what the Republicans might say the Biden administration is doing currently at the border with regard to enforcement of immigration laws. Uh, and the question there is uh, different from the scenario of over enforcement. And uh, so Will is going to discuss uh, how Congress might approach 
uh, the question of trying to affect executive branch conduct in the context of under or non-enforcement? Yeah, sure. Um, A lot of the tools are very similar to those that that Hosh laid out. Um, There are appropriations um, that can be used to zero out out agency or individual's budgets um, in order to put pressure on the administration to uh, rescind or amend um, what they're doing. Um, There's legislation, uh, unlikely um, for the reasons Hosh identified and even more difficult in this context given the the sort of nature of the hypothetical involving um, uh, enforcement, issues of enforcement and prosecutorial discretion. so I, I think maybe I'll focus on sort of the playbook that, that I would imagine Congress will, will actually use here, which is, is just drawing from the last couple of years. Um, and so they won't really need to innovate. But much of what I think they'll, they'll do, at least at the outset, is to generate a lot of uh, derogatory information about what's, what's going on. And they have a variety of ways of doing this, and both sort of straightforward based on statute and then uh, also uh, again, taking sort of a, a look at the last couple of years, generating information in, in, in less uh, sort of uh, conventional ways. The, the, the conventional ways of, of generating information would include whistleblower uh, statutes and encouraging and responding to uh, whistleblower complaints and information that's generated and transmitted to Congress. Um, we saw that a little bit in the last couple of years. Uh, those statutes are relevant both to, in and outside the intelligence community and the FBI um, and can be useful. Um, in addition to that, there are I, uh, the IG statutes all include various ways in which non-public information can be transmitted and, and in some instances required to be transmitted to Congress. That's another um, way in which Congress can obtain uh, information. And I think the dynamic between the Congress and IGs in particular um, will be very interesting uh, to see sort of unfold. Um, the role, the role the IGs played, obviously, uh, in the last administration was was an important role, um, and uh, I, I think we should expect to see, and I think Congress will be interested to see that role continue. Um, and so, I could imagine a very sort of robust dialogue with IGs at hearings um, and otherwise to um, uh, ensure that they're continuing to play that that active role that they played in the last administration. Um, in addition to this, I, mean, I think I think it you know it should be mentioned, although this would be less conventional, is that you know non-public information is transmitted to the Congress um, in less conventional routes. So from you know in the in the hypothetical from uh, you know folks on the border, border patrol agents and the like, who um, can one come to Congress, come to a committee, um, have a transcribed interview and the like, but otherwise also provide information uh, to Congress as occurred again in the last administration. So I think um, I focus on those sort of ways of generating information because I think that will be the first place that Congress will look. But of course, you know, all the tools that that Hosh mentioned are otherwise available in this context, but but maybe even more, more difficult for the reason identified. And of course, There'll be state litigation and the like, as was seen before with um, with with DACA. Um, so I imagine that will be um, that'll be interesting to see unfold as well. And so one quick follow up on that, which look, I, I grant that legislation is probably the least likely of the tools that can be used here. But if legislation is sort of on the table, 
the reason why the under enforcement's a lot harder than uh, excessive authority is that the executive branch is undoubtedly going to argue that it's sort of a core part of executive power about when to enforce the laws. And so it'll be pretty important to be very clear about the ways in which the statute is limiting that discretion, because they'll otherwise argue that it should be any ambiguity should be construed in favor of prosecutorial discretion and things like that. So that's that's part of the reason why I just focus on the difference between the two is it's going to bring up a whole, a whole different set of arguments. I think this uh, this notion that Will mentioned of Congress receiving information from mid-level uh, employees within the executive branch departments, agencies, career uh, employees, um, akin to whistleblower information. The whistleblowers, to, to have a whistleblower status requires certain procedural hoops uh, that are a little bit more formalized to go through. But Congress takes the view, and in fact, there's a statute to this effect, that it is against the law for any head of a department to impede the ability of any employee in the department to communicate freely with Congress. Uh, this is an area of frequent tension between the branches because from the executive branch perspective, you have, uh, Hash mentioned the phrase unitary executive, you have the president as the chief executive officer supervising all the subordinate officers within the executive branch and carrying out their functions and attempting to uh, apply the law uh, faithfully, and uh, the executive branch views it as very important to that functioning to control the flow of deliberative information that's non-public relating to non-final decisions and control the uh, disclosure of that information in a way that may chill and harm the process of uh, informing the executive branch's functions. And uh, also that the executive branch speaks with one voice when it speaks to to Congress. So there's a real tension there. Uh, there's also a tension whenever Congress wants to conduct informal interviews or deposition transcribed interviews of career officials low, below the political levels. In the, typically, uh, the executive branch wants its agencies, departments to speak to Congress, respond to Congress's information requests through political leadership uh, in the departments. Um, but again, all these rules and all of these principles are subject to exceptions and subject to negotiation in the accommodation process. And it's really often the case that uh, the executive branch allows these um, variations to occur in order to try to satisfy uh, one of the oversight committees or one of the legislative committees of Congress. Let me turn finally to the, to the final hypothetical scenario that we wanted uh, to address. And this is... Um, where there may be allegations of embarrassing conduct, uh, for example, by a member of the president's family that perhaps occurred in the past, uh, such as, you know, the Hunter Biden circumstance. Uh, and uh, these, th these kinds of um, allegations always come up in the, in the interactions between one party uh, in Congress and a different party uh, in the White House. And the question may be, um, what can Congress do uh, to address or target this kind of issue, uh, particularly if you assume there's a, that the same conduct in question may be the subject of a law enforcement investigation that's ongoing 
uh, within the executive branch, such as in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware, for example. Um, and so it raises kind of a principle or fundamental question, uh, and that is, is embarrassing the president and scoring political points for purposes of the next election, is that a valid basis for Congress's use of its authorities, its investigatory powers, the other powers we've talked about, its oversight function, et cetera? Um, the executive branch may say no, because that's not tied to some particular piece of legislation that Congress may adopt. Congress does not have authority over the law enforcement investigation and the prosecution for such conduct. The conduct in my hypo is past conduct of a family member that doesn't affect or isn't related to the current policy uh, actions of the executive branch. Um, on the other hand, as a practical matter, this happens every day on the Hill. Uh, hearings are held, questions are asked, information is demanded, uh, arguments are made uh, on Fox News or in other um, uh, venues uh, for the purpose of trying to embarrass uh, the executive branch or score political points. So that's, that's really uh, a reality. Um, in th this kind of context, there could also be uh, the potential for a demand for a special prosecutor uh, to, be a, to be appointed. Uh, there's the possibility that Congress, I'm sorry, did you? Okay, that um, Congress, uh, Committee of Congress could um, uh, pursue the avenue of granting testimonial immunity to witnesses. Uh, this creates uh, the potential for conflict with the law enforcement function of the executive branch because those witnesses cannot be prosecuted for anything they communicate under a grant uh, of immunity. Um, there's also, this is also the kind of a situation where you see a lot of coordination between committees in Congress and outside advocacy groups that uh, pursue very active FOIA requests and uh, also generate a kind of opposition research that then feeds into the legislative hearing uh, process. Um, also, this could be an area where you might see aggressive use of oversight requests or information demands from individual members of Congress or from a group of seven or group of five, as we discussed uh, under, under that statute. Generally speaking, the view of the executive branch is Congress is entitled to information from the executive branch when it's operating through the formal committee structure typically with the, well, with the approval of the chairman of a committee and typically both the chairman and the ranking member. But, but every member of Congress is entitled to respect and every letter gets responded to, uh, sometimes slower than others. Um, but the question is sensitive information, when is that, uh, when is that uh, provided? In the hypo I'm talking about here, there could really be significant issues with the law enforcement privilege that Will uh, mentioned mentioned before. Um, and of course, backing all of this up, uh, which we really haven't mentioned, but is always lurking in the background, is the potential for a Congress, which has become unfortunately more frequent these days, uh, to consider uh, proceeding with articles of impeachment against officers of the executive branch. So, so that's great. So I want to, so Hosh and Will, if you each take like a minute or so to respond, and then I'm, I know some of our audience members have questions for the last 15 minutes, if that works for you guys. Yeah, yep. I, I just had a, a brief reaction to that last sort of bucket of uh, questions, which is, 
You know, I think that the law is relatively well established that when you're dealing with a purely private party, Congress doesn't have sort of a legitimate investigatory interest in exposing wrongdoing just for the sake of it. Uh, There's a fair amount of case law that says that. There's a more open question if you're dealing with uh, government officials, even sort of separate from legislation, whether there's a so-called informing function. The case law is a little bit more mixed on that. But really, I think where the rubber would hit the road with respect to a purely private party is Congress will likely try to come up with some way to say it's tied to some sort of legislation. And historically, courts have not really second-guessed that very much. The Mazur's decision that Will referenced indicates a willingness to kick the tires on that a little bit more. To, to I think they use the phrase to not be blind to what all can see. Now, that was in the context of the president himself. Uh, it's obviously quite different than even president's family members, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see the extent to which the court is willing to sort of look through fairly contrived legislative rationales when it's really being done for obvious political motives. But right. I think that's where a lot of the fight will be. Will, anything? Yeah, just a, a, a two-finger on that. I agree. I think that's where the fight will be, and it will be so interesting to see. I mean, the court the court has said it was in dicta, of course, but they said that disclosure for the sake of disclosure is not is, is not a valid sort of, you know, congressional oversight purpose. Um, and and, uh, and as, as Hosh mentioned, the Mazar's decision is, is limited by its terms to, to the president um, and doesn't necessarily extend further, although its rationale would extend further, because if, if you can harass the president's family members, um, then you are, in effect, um, uh, harassing the president. And, and that's why Mazar's established this new sort of separation of powers rule that, um, like Hosh said, um, has made it easier to sort of dig in a little bit to see what the what the con- Congress is really doing. That said, um, in the aftermath of the January 6th investigation and the like, um, a fair amount of deference has been given to the Congress and its explanation of what the legislative purpose might be. Um, and so although courts will, I think, be interested to see what the what the justification is, you can imagine a variety of different justifications, although courts, I think, will be um, sensitive to the fact that um, subpoenas to third parties involving the president's family implicate the same concerns that Mazars implicates. Um, so, but but I think I think we'll see activity in that area, and it'll be really interesting to see how it unfolds. I suspect. Great, so. thank you. Thank you. And I should have said this. Probably the speakers, if you are speaking, can move your mics closer. And then audience members who have questions, if you raise your hand or stand, we have microphones. So I think Judge Griffith, Jace, if we can get him the microphone. Thank you. This has been really uh, illuminating and much appreciated. Um, Much of the discussion that we've heard thus far has been uh, in terms of the separation of powers and talking about the the various branches of government. I'm wondering how much of the analysis is affected by the partisan nature of uh, of the inquiries. Uh, um, uh, it, It doesn't take much study of history to see members of Congress take vastly different positions on separation of powers issues depending on which party is in power. Um, In the old days, you had Senator Byrd, who uh, stood up for the institutional interest of of the Senate, even against his own president. Senator Lee, on war powers uh, issues, has stood up against the uh, president of his own party. But those seem to be um, few and far between. Maybe I'm reading it wrong, but but I'd be interested in, in the panel's views on 
what partisanship has done to the separation of powers principles that are so fundamental to the to the Constitution. Well, so, thanks. Go ahead. So, I definitely, I don't want to oversell it, but like for example, uh, what I was saying before about the litigation over subpoenas always mooting out, that is not necessarily what has to happen, right? Like you could easily imagine a world in which the parties shift, but Congress still wants the information and the executive still says, we're not turning it over because there's privilege, right? But instead what happens is when the parties flip, the cases tend to moot out. And I do think that that is a reflection, at least in part, of the, a, a lack of desire, for example, on the executive branch to fight with their own majority party in Congress, right? There's a greater incentive to, for example, you know, for, with McGahn, they had McGahn go testify, right, after having fought him for a long time. Now, they negotiated it, and it was less than there was originally, and so I don't want to suggest that it's like a blanket abdication of either side's institutional prerogatives, but I do think that it is right that there is less fighting for institutional prerogatives because of the partisan implications. And sort of, as I said before, it's conversely true, I think, on the legislative side, right? Like, it, you could easily imagine a world in which Congress sort of, on a bipartisan nature, was inclined to pass legislation, giving themselves greater litigation authority or to enforce subpoenas or things like that. And I suspect at least part of the reason that has never gone very far is everyone likes it to some extent, but is always worried about when the shoe's going to be on the other foot. I, I, I get uh, Thank you. I, what I was trying to get at is uh, a normative judgment about whether these are, this is a good development or uh, uh, an unavoidable development or something that ought to be spoken out against. Look, speaking for myself, I don't think it's a good development. I don't know whether it is unavoidable. You know, the country is more politicized than it has been historically. I'm not sure that's going to change anytime soon. It's asking a lot of elected officials to, on both, either on the executive or the legislative side, to, you know, really stand up for institutional prerogatives to, at the expense of the party. You know, it'd be great if they did, but. Yeah, I'll jump in here if I could, Judge. Um, certainly the partisan nature of the environment has increased the temperature level and the vitriol and the intensity and made it more like a sort of litigation showdown, if not a, a war <laughs> sometimes, between the branches. And that's a, a, certainly a, a negative trend we've seen. But I think from my perspective as an OLCer, I still see a consistent strain of each branch looking out consistently and traditionally for the institutional interests of its, of the, of its branch. And I really think this demonstrates the genius of the founders and the separation of power structure to our Constitution. So you still see, for example, President Bush, Bush 43, his f he only asserted executive privilege actually four times, and the first assertion was over sensitive information from the Clinton administration that Congress was continuing to pursue into the early years of the Bush administration. That was his first assertion of privilege. And then you see things like the leak or the disclosure of an OLC opinion that simply expresses the traditional view of the executive branch that we respond, the executive branch responds to formal oversight requests from committees, not from individual members of Congress. And Chairman Grassley, Republican chairman of the Judiciary Committee at the time, 
uh, flipped out about that, was very unhappy, and uh, took uh, the executive branch to task, uh, and in other words, stood up for the uh, for the prerogatives of individual members of Congress and the con- traditional view of Congress that every member is entitled to respect and to request information and and entitled to response, etc. And so those are just two little examples. I think that the institutional interests uh, you see continue to a good extent there's continuity, uh, even though the intensity over particular issues goes away. Now, I mean, goes up. Um, um, now, maybe, you know, the current posture, we, we see some extreme statements and we, we see uh, positions being taken that do not appear consistent with the long-term institutional interests of of a branch, um, and uh, it's just—I guess—it's the nature of the times. Things are, things are fraying at the yeah, edges. Yeah, and I, I don't disagree with anything you said. I, as I said, I, I don't want to oversell the extent to which each branch is not sort of standing up for institutional prerogatives, but I do think there is some. Of that. I, w- uh, I would. Oh, go ahead, Will, please. I, I, I would only add. I, I don't know how much partisanship has driven this versus the sort of generalized abdication over a longer period of time. It's easier for Congress not to defend its prerogatives. Its capacity and its competency to do so, I think, has um, certainly diminished over time, um, which is not to attack staffers. I was one. But if you look at the resources available to to congressmen and the like, um, they're handicapped by... um, things that are in the executive branch are not true, um, that the resources aren't there. And then, you know, and, and Hosh mentioned um, the CRA and the RAINS Act. The trend has been towards, um, you know, legislation like like the CRA, um, which permits Congress to say, we don't like that, but actually doesn't put the onus on them of actually doing anything, versus a confirmatory RAINS Act type statute, which will never pass. Um, which would actually force them to do their jobs. And so they've been pretty smart about avoiding anything that would require them to do do something. And, and part of that might just be it's hard to do things. Part of it, I think, is just sort of capacity that's diminished over time. But um, Sam, did you have a question? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, enforcement perspective, looking at it from Congress's perspective, you can enforce politically political motions, or you can go to some formal. And I guess the question I had was something that you know, has kind of been thought about in Congress and gamed out in some perspectives is, okay, the other, the other mechanisms don't work well. How do you bring back inherent contempt? And I guess I was curious in the DOJ perspective of a scenario where you, know, you had something where a witness is not going to show up because they're asserting you know, the White House advisor immunity or they're asserting some other immunity and the House says, okay, I'm going to attach them to show up and testify. And I was curious, you know, what do you all think the DOJ reaction would be to a call from the House counsel, you know, to OLA saying, we've held this guy in contempt, we're going to the floor, we're going to attach him, we'll meet you in DDC if you want to bring habeas, but that's what we're going to do. He's going to be in the chair to testify at this deposition. So I'll tell you what I wrote in a brief for the DOJ last night. I don't know if they'll still stick to it, but we definitely took the position that the inherent contempt power does not extend to executive branch officials asserting valid executive branch privilege. I can't remember all the details of the argument, but basically the the gist of it was inherent contempt. All of the oversight is sort of an implied incidental power. 
it's only justified by historical reference and it's got to be necessary. And the argument we essentially made is there is a historical basis for asserting it with respect to the executive branch officials and it's not necessary because as a vis-a-vis executive branch officials, you've got the accommodation process, right? Unlike a private party where Congress doesn't really have anything you can do if there's some private party who's not complying with the subpoena and for some reason the executive branch isn't enforcing it, at least with the executive branch official, you have all the normal push and pull of the political process. So I think that was the, the heart of our argument. Now, I don't know whether the current executive branch would do that, and more importantly, for your purposes, I don't know what the DDC and the DC Circuit would do about it. Uh, during the en banc argument in McGann, there was definitely a fair amount of questioning about it, uh, because I think that at least partly motivated some folks to want there to be civil suit authority to avoid the much more confrontational result of an arrest followed by a habeas petition. I'm going to take the uh, host privilege and ask one final question, because a lot of what we've been talking about, particularly in the last few minutes, are the sort of much more high-profile questions at the top, right, of executive privilege when the president is claiming confidentiality for his communications with subordinates or contempt or whatever. But I mean, it's a huge executive branch, lots of agencies. If the oversight power is really an adjunct to legislative function, that would mean Congress does, in its legislating role, have the ability to ask for information from about all manner of executive or agency action. So it seems to me the real bulk of the meat of what's happening is actually not this sort of Criti- you know, the, the controversial stuff with the president, but agency officials. So what do you right. all think if Congress is trying to be effective, would they bring in assistant secretaries of agencies and ask them questions? Are the constitutional issues different there, number one? And number two, would Congress get more information if instead of just doing oversight on the back end, when it legislates, it puts more reporting requirements up front? So it thinks ahead, what information do we want? Mm-hmm. And just mandates it as a statutory requirement. Would that well, well, this is uh, sort of the bread and butter day-to-day of oversight. Um, eight, uh, the committees in Congress may have particular jurisdiction over particular departments and agencies, maybe sometimes multiple uh, committees, and they have regular oversight hearings where they will call in the secretary, but also the assistant secretary, the undersecretary in the different areas for oversight uh, testimony um, to understand how the programs are being conducted, where the issues are, et cetera. And there's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of information, a lot of information flow. Um, and I, I do think Congress uh, puts in reporting requirements more frequently in legislation. I don't know how effective those reports really are. Uh, they tend to get into a routine of sort of canned information being repeated uh, in the periodic reports. But um, but this is the everyday business of oversight, which it takes up a, a lot of the docket capacity up here on Capitol Hill and a lot of the time and effort of the committees. And there's a lot of information that uh, flows. And of course, the regular and effective functioning of both branches requires a relationship of communication and trust between senior officers in the executive branch and the oversight committees that uh, that um, really have particular jurisdiction over their, uh, their um, functions. Will Hosh, any closing comments? No? All right, thank you. Great, thank you.